0: All well, right, it's good to be sharing God's Word with you again. Um, I hope this series been, has been a blessing to you as it has to me as I've been digging into the Word of God and to uh, be looking at this topic of uh, righteous judgment and what it means for us to judge righteously. It is a, a quite a broad subject in and of itself and we've, we've looked at topics such as you know, judging sin, judging ourselves, how do we judge uh, uh, doctrine and false teachings and those sorts of things. And uh, today we're looking at uh, a particular topic, which is probably a little bit more complicated than doing it in one particular sermon. But it's regarding judging matters where we disagree with each other. And the passage that uh, Brother Rowan read out for us this morning is the passage I'll be looking at over the next couple of weeks. Uh, and the idea is, what do we do with each other as believers? We might attend the same church, we believe the same doctrine. But then all of a sudden, someone else disagrees with us on a particular topic, um, and the Bible maybe isn't 100% clear on it. What do we do with those particular things? So my, my prayer is over the next couple of weeks, that we'll look at this uh, topic clearly enough that we can actually apply the Word of God in a way that honors Him and the way that edifies each other. And So I'll get you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Romans again, chapter 14, verses 1 to 4 we'll read this morning, which is what we'll look at. And we'll look at this topic of judging righteously. Romans 14.1 Him that is weak in the faith receive you, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth, yea, he shall be holden up. For God is able to make him stand. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll commit this time to him. Father in heaven, once again, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you that it is as a sword that cuts to the bone and the marrow, is able to discern our thoughts and our intents. And I pray this morning that uh, you would open up our eyes and our hearts to your truth, that it may reveal to us ourselves, reveal to us even more deeply the Lord Jesus Christ and how we are called to live as he lived. And so we ask for your blessing upon us today. We ask for the grace to be able to live these words in a way that honours you, in a way that shines your light in this world, that draws people to yourself and reveals your wonderful love and grace. So we ask once again, that you be honored this morning in this way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so in order for us to look at this particular topic, we have to go back to the law, because oftentimes people judge each other uh, about certain matters, because they misapply the law, okay? They take the law in the Old Testament most of the times and they'll apply that to today. And they'll say, see, you shouldn't be doing this because the law says this. And so one of the obvious differences you find when you read the New Testament compared to the Old are the lack of laws. Have you ever noticed that? And there isn't a whole chapter in Levitical laws and all those types of things. There are whole books associated with laws. In the Old Testament there are plenty of them and plenty of detail as well but in the New Testament uh, you look at the New Testament and you see hang on a sec but why aren't all these laws the same what's happened to them all and part of that has to do really with the New Testament you see there is a new new agreement that God has made with mankind and that new agreement is meant to encompass not just the Jewish people whom God had called to be his people and to set up a state, okay, and to be run according to his rules. This was meant to encompass and embrace all of mankind. Now, when I look out in this uh, audience here, I see a lot of different people from different backgrounds, different um, nationalities, different languages, different cultures. Christianity is able to reach into every culture in the world, okay, and it is, and that's the beauty of it. And God has made it. Flexible enough to be able to do that. And so you don't find all these finely detailed laws that you find in the Old Testament because they were spe- most of all specifically for the Jews. Okay. So you might say, well, oh, Pastor Frank, but you know, is you know, are, are the laws you know not the same? Are the moral laws not the same? Actually, Jesus told us and showed us that the moral laws that are contained in the Old Testament were deeper than what they expected. You see. I'll give you a couple of examples. When they spoke about adultery, and the Bible simply says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, the most, most people, it was a physical action that you had to do in order to break that law. And Jesus came along and said, well, wait one minute. It's not just the physical act of going out and committing adultery. But if a man looketh at a woman to lust after her, He has committed adultery already in his heart. Well, that lays bare a whole lot of problems, doesn't it? That means I can't can't play around in my heart and in my head, those things, because it means I'm a lawbreaker inside as well as outside. In fact, the breaking of law on the outside is really just a manifestation of what's going on already in here. So when you looked at even things such as the Sabbath, and Brother Don grew up, used to tie to a chair, I think, on the Sabbath for the whole day because you couldn't move. Is that right? Things were a little bit stricter in those days. Um, but in Jesus' day, they condemned him for healing a man on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, hold on right there. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made to honour God and the fact that he took a rest on that, on that, on that uh, final day. But... Even the, the most basic person, the, 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 the people who were, he was talking to, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Scribes, he goes, y- if your ox fell into a ditch, you'd, you'd pull it out on a, on, a, on a Sabbath, wouldn't you? Which was a Saturday. But you're condemning me for not healing for healing someone on a Sabbath? So what can you do on a Sabbath? You see, it was up for interpretation, wasn't it? You know, the Jews even today mark those days so strictly that they can only walk a certain number of paces in a day. They can't walk more than a certain thing. They can't flip on light switches, but they will get other people to flip on the light switch for them. (laughs) okay. So one of the obvious things we find in the New Testament is it doesn't contain all the Old Testament laws. And for instance, and just to basically no longer do we have all the detailed codes, for the Levitical laws. When we say Levitical laws, it applies to the Levites. Remember, the Levites were a particular family that God had chosen to be the priests. And they had a very important job in the Jewish nation. Okay, but that's not applicable anymore. Um, Guess what? There's no more priesthood in the New Testament. In fact, the Bible teaches us now that we are all priests to God. We can all come to God. We all have that responsibility. There were no more sacrifices of bulls and goats and other things that were meant to be done at a temple because there was no temple anymore. There was no need for a temple anymore. And so you have all those laws not mentioned, not required. There is no more feasts, no more special holy days, a celebration of various moons and Sabbaths and high Sabbaths. So what do we celebrate? Bible teaches us that every day is holy to the Lord. There is even no prescription for criminal justice, and so in the Old Testament, under the under the laws that God had given to His people through Moses, you know, if someone had committed adultery, you stoned them to death. If someone was a murderer, they were stoned to death. There were laws and penalties in place. Where are they in the New Testament? Nowhere. Why? Because the new testament doesn't concern itself with the running of a legal system in the country it's not it's not required it's not that's not what it's talking about it doesn't need to concern itself with running a civil government as the nation of israel but even the dietary laws were gone clothing laws for clothing were gone all those things that the jews were used to in the old testament vanished now why the Bible says that God with the Jews had chosen them for himself and to create a very peculiar people and peculiar they were and he made them very different to everyone else and he said to them I want you to abide by my rules and I want this world to see what it means to live in a society that's governed that is a theocracy it doesn't have a king it doesn't have all these you know levels of government how many levels of government do we have here in Australia who knows too many might say, yes. So we have federal and state and local, and then you have in between those, probably, you know, another 20 packed in between that too. And so, how do you how do you run a nation that's a theocracy, which means just under God? Well, you have a priesthood system, and that's what God had originally intended for his people. But all these laws that we, we read in the Old Testament aren't mentioned in, in the New. Because the Bible tells us, and one of the reasons is that if you're under the law, the Bible says that you were cursed. Cursed. So turn with me to Galatians 3, verse 10. So the first thing I want you to understand is that even under all the laws, even though the laws themselves are good. It meant that you were cursed. So Galatians 3.10 says that, For as many as are the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You know why were we cursed? We couldn't keep them. And if you can't keep every one of them, you're cursed. And so the one thing that is certain for every person in this world is that no one continues in them. Not one person. Not only do they not continue, they can't. Despite the the efforts, the best efforts of people, as hard as they may try, they cannot keep those laws, which means they are under the curse of the law. They've been cursed. So according to this, if you're under the curse of the law, what's the what do you do? How do you get out from that curse? Well, praise God, because Galatians 3.13 tells us what Jesus did for us. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So not only did he keep the law perfectly, both morally, intentionally, within his head, within his heart, and externally, in every way, he then went to a tree and became a curse for you and me, so that we would not be cursed, so that we could be released from that curse. So thank you, Jesus. And only he could do that. Only he. He was the only one who could. Because he was the spotless lamb of God. He was perfect in every way. And the beautiful thing about that curse, it couldn't stick to him. It couldn't stick. Because there was nothing he could grab onto. There was no sin within his own life that it actually could hold on and keep him in, in hell. So why did God give the law? Why did God give all the law? was the law evil or bad no the law was never evil the law was never bad it was designed to show us something turn to romans chapter 7 with me romans chapter 7 romans 7:12 7, says wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good Now, I'll just stop there just for a second you know why it's holy and just and good because it came it comes from the holy and just one whatever law he decided to make and I'll tell you this now if he told us to stand on our heads while we were praying that would have been a holy and just law because it comes from him it's as simple as that every law that comes from him is holy because he is the holy one Okay, so let's continue. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, worketh death in me by that which is good. That sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And so what this revealed in us was the the sinfulness of sin, how bad it was, and not just how bad it was, but how bad we actually were. It showed us how deep this thing is embedded within us. It showed us how the more we try, the more rebellious we become. It showed us how sinful we are deep down, how we like it, how we're drawn to it, how we naturally gravitate to this thing that we say that we hate, But deep down, we fall into it so quickly and so easily, knowing full well that to do so is rebellion against our maker and our sovereign. The more I tried to do the right thing, the more my flesh found a reason to do it, the more excuses it brought up. And when I did something right for once, I became proud because of how good I was then. And I began to look at other people who couldn't do that thing that I did as weaker and lesser than me. You see, this is the, the, the situation that we find ourselves in. Even when we do something right, we corrupt that thing which is right and turn it into something evil. We always do. That's our very nature. And so in my flesh, there's pride. There is hatred. There is lust. And so when I do something wrong, I justify it. For myself, but I pointed out in other people. And as soon as I do something right, I pointed out in other people and I justify myself again. What sinful people we are at all levels, at every level. My heart was revealed as something utterly sinful and deceitful. In fact, the Bible tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. And so not only does it go out trying to deceive everyone else about how good I am. Have you ever seen people's, uh, you know, blogs and Facebook pages and that? How many people are telling you that they're sinners and bad people out there? No. Why? Because it's not true? No because the heart is deceitful above all things. It loves to deceive. It loves to let everyone else know how good I am. I want to be told how good I am. And so it continues with the charade, not just in front of other people, but even more so to ourselves. We deceive ourselves each and every day. And so we had this situation where God gives us the law, which is something holy and good, but what it reveals is something absolutely terrible and wicked that's going on inside my heart. Even though it was perfect and good, it couldn't make me righteous. You know why it can't make me righteous? It wasn't designed to. It wasn't designed to make me righteous. Because the more I tried, the more I saw of it, the more I studied it, the more it was revealed how bad I actually was. So the law was never designed to make a person good or to make a person holy or to get us into heaven. So Romans 3.20, if you turn with me there, tells us, and most of you know this verse quite well, says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And there you have it. That's the purpose of the law. It made me aware of my sin. But now I have a a problem. I'm under its curse. I am condemned to hell. I have a problem with myself that I can't seem to fix. In fact, when I first heard the gospel and I thought to myself, no, that's true. Jesus is right. I'm going to fix up my life and I'm I'm going to become a Christian. And when I tried to fix up my life, guess what happened? I couldn't do it. It was terrible. Three months of complete abject failure. And it wasn't until God actually changed some when I actually came to God and real and said to God, I can't, I can't fix myself. I want to, but I can't. I want to do it for you, but I can't. Is the time when I threw myself at his mercy. I got saved. And then his spirit within me made that change without any effort on my part does it mean I'm perfect now no but he revealed in that particular instance that it's him who actually makes the change within us and we need his grace to do that and so there is no flesh that's justified by the keeping of the law or trying to trying to keep a track of all the laws which none of us can do by the way because by the knowledge of the law is sin so what should happen to me then? That knowledge of my abject hopelessness, and the sin, and the curse that I am under, because the the condemnation of that is hell. Okay, the curse from that is that you deserve hell. Should drive us to the mercy of God. That's what it should do. That's what it was designed to do. It's, it's designed to throw myself at God's at God's feet and say, and to humble myself before Him, and to say. I need you to save me because I can't save myself. I need your forgiveness. Ultimately, I need someone to come and rescue me from myself. Hence why he sent the rescuer, why he sent the saviour into the world to save us. And so Galatians, turn with me to Galatians 3.24 because the the law had a much grander purpose than just revealing our own sin and our own problem. It says in Galatians 3.24, and this is a really good verse to understand, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, To bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Did you get that? Um, Ever had a really good teacher? And growing up, everyone's got that favourite teacher in primary school or high school that really made a difference in their life. The law was meant to be our teacher. And the teacher was meant to point us to Christ. And that when he came, we we would recognise him as the one who could save us please understand what this verse says that the law was ultimately given by god to draw us to christ so we could be saved by simple faith in him so what happens to all the laws well now the the bible doesn't provide us with all the details of all those laws what it does it provides us with these guiding principles with these things that are foundational now to our lives Things called faith, hope and charity or love. And they become our guiding principles in our life. Why love and why? And the, and the Bible says that the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? Because it was first of all love that caused God to send his son into the world to rescue people like us. It was love that God demonstrated by Jesus dying on a cross and now we've been called to love him in return. And if we can love him in return, we automatically fulfill all the law. We automatically do that which he desires of us to do. If we can love him in return the way he loves us, and the Bible tells us that we love him because he first loved us, we are then called to love one another. And the way we love one another is an indication of, Of what type of love we actually have and whether we've really understood the love of God for us. We are no longer indebted to the law as such because we've now been justified by Christ. We've now been declared just which means we are no longer under the law. You might say, oh pastor that's a dangerous place to be. We're not under the law. We're not being judged by the law. No, because Christ was already judged for you. Under the law. So we are no longer judged by the law. We are no longer under the law, under its condemnation. We are no longer indebted to the law. Now we are indebted to love. We are indebted to love one another. We are indebted to love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength. Because love fulfills all of those laws without having to even write them down. Turn with me to Romans chapter 13 verse 8. Romans 13:8 says, "O no man anything, don't be indebted to other men, but to love one another." For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. If there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Because if I love my neighbor honestly, if I truly love my neighbor, I will not commit adultery. If I truly love my neighbor, I will not kill them. I will not steal from them. I will not lie to them. I will not do anything that would harm them, but I would only seek that which is good for them. Love fulfills the law completely. And you and I, if we're born again, are no longer under the law. There is no law on top of us that says, Thou shalt not, because you've been told, Thou shalt do this. Paul repeats this again in Galatians. Turn to Galatians 5.13. And he adds something further which becomes then a bit of a basis for our, how we judge this particular topic or where we're going to go with it. Because Paul uses a phrase that some people get very scared of. Galatians 5.13, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, But by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. So what's he saying here? It means that if you are in Christ this morning, you are completely free. Freed from the condemnation of the law. Free from being under the law. But what does that mean? What does this type of liberty even mean? That Paul has to explain, you're free now, but don't use your freedom to sin don't use your freedom to go feeding your flesh what does it mean to be free what does freedom in christ actually look like and when it comes to righteous judgment how are how are we to be with each other when we consider certain things i might consider something a sin but you might not consider it a sin what what do i do with you then do i can i condemn you and say sinner or can I look at myself and say I'm doing the right thing but they're doing the wrong thing. What well, what are the boundaries here when you ha- when you have this type of situation going on? How are we supposed to deal with each other when we don't agree? Well, let's go back to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, we're going to look at these few verses. Because this chapter is a beautiful chapter for us to, if we understand it, how to deal with each other when we don't agree on the same things, when we don't see eye to eye on all on all uh, topics. So Romans fourteen one says, "Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things; another who is weak eateth herbs." So let's just stop there for a moment. This passage mentions two types of people. It mentions mentions the ones that's weak in the faith and one that is strong in the faith. Now, you might think the stronger one must be the one that actually has more stricter rules. That must be the one. The one who follows a more strict diet. The one who lives a more austere and rigid lifestyle. But this actually teaches the opposite. This actually doesn't teach that the weak christian in this passage is the more legalistic one when i say legalistic i say what i mean is they have more rules imposed on themselves they can't eat that food i can't have this i can't have that i can't do this in fact they're called the weaker one they're unable to accept this liberty in christ while the stronger christian understands his or her liberty let me give you an example on why this is important for us to understand in the church in Rome where Paul is writing to, there would have been a great number of Jewish believers. In fact, it was the Jews who probably first came to the to, to salvation. And they started meeting in synagogues and homes and places like that. And then as the church began to grow in Rome, many, many Gentiles started coming in. And you know those Italians, you know, when they get when they get involved. Gotta be careful. And so They started getting together. Now the Jews, coming from a Jewish background, knew had all the all the Old Testament laws. They knew them all. You know, thou shalt not eat pork. Thou shalt not have a crayfish for lunch. (laughs) And here are these Italians and these Greeks that didn't come from any of that. They were eating everything and anything they could get their hands on and they're coming into the church and and celebrating you know what they have in christ together so here you've got the jews with you know they've got all the dietary laws and they've kept all these rules and regulations and how they're supposed to dress and how they're supposed to do this and do that and how so everything's you know they've been brought up as children like that from 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 a child and there you have the the greeks and the italians you know sitting together in the same church um, with very, very different backgrounds. One's invited the other one over to their place. The Italian invites the uh, the Jew over for some lunch. I want to get to know each other a bit better. Come over to my place. Uh, I'd like to have you over for some dinner. The Jew's already thinking, oh no. And so, the Jew's thinking to himself, oh, I wonder who's he's going to feed us. I wonder where he bought that meat from as well. Because, I mean, you know the, the kosher butcher that we go to? You know, you know, uh, what's, what's a good Jewish name? Come on, help me here. Don't leave me oh, in hanging. You guys are hopeless, actually. Abraham, <laughs> Abraham okay. Abraham. <laughs> Abraham. <laughs> <laughs> took ages to come out with Abraham. All right, so Abraham, our local butcher, he's a kosher guy. He knows what meat we're allowed to eat and he'll cut it. He's not going to mix up that knife, you know, cutting up, uh, you know, a lamb and then with the same knife, he's going to cut up, uh, you know, pork and he's going to cut up other stuff that, you know, and a horse that they weren't supposed to eat. And this guy's going to, and this who's, you know, we've been invited to, I don't know where he's buying his meat. That meat's probably been sacrificed to some idol as well. And actually they were. Most of the meat that was actually presented in those days that was sold in the marketplace had already pre been pre-sacrificed to Roman and Greek deities. You just didn't know it. It just happened in the background, okay? And so what do you do if you're a Jew and you still aren't completely uncomfortable with this sort of stuff? He's the weaker one, you see the weak one because he's got more laws imposed upon himself. And so, what do you do? do does he abstain? Does he go? Does he say no, I'm not going to I'm not going to come? He's going to be rude. If he if he arrives, what's he going to do? Does he just not eat? Well, that's going to offend the Italian, isn't it? Because if you don't eat in an Italian's house, especially an Italian mother, it's very <laughs> offensive. You might not leave the house. For some Christians, it was a it was a huge, huge stumbling block. You know, what could you eat? Maybe if you just ate the salad, maybe you just had that, which would have been once again a problem. But you might think, oh, that's a bit of a strange thing. We don't have that problem today. We actually do. Okay, Um, but it wasn't just unique to those people. Even the Apostle Peter had a problem with this. So even Peter had this problem of when the Lord was about to send the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles. You know, Jesus says, you know, you shall be witnesses to me in, in, in Jerusalem and in Judea, in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And that's the way the Holy Spirit was poured out, believe it or not, in that order. Okay, came out in, in, in Judea, in Jerusalem first, then it went to Samaria. God poured out the Holy Spirit in Samaria. And then we have this fellow called Cornelius, who had heard the gospel and and uh, and. and God was organising to pour the Holy Spirit out on Cornelius, this Roman centurion, and his family, and his whole family. And he had sent his servants to go, and God had told him, send your servants to Peter, one Simon the Tanner, whatever it is, or Simon, and he's in a jopper, and actually go there and send send them. And so before they arrive to Peter's house, these people from this Roman family, the Lord gives Peter a vision. God starts prepping Peter up because God already knows what problem Peter's got. Is Peter going to go into that house? Is Peter going to eat the food? Is Peter going to cause problems? Peter was a bit of a, some people might say a bit of a redneck, but he was a bit rough around the edges. But God was prepping him up. So turn to Acts chapter 10 verse 9 with me. Acts chapter 10 verse 9. So God gives Peter a vision to prepare him for this job that he has to do which for him was a problem so Acts chapter 10 verse 9 on the morrow as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour and he became very hungry and he would have eaten But while they made ready, he fell into a trance, and saw heaven opened, and a certain vessel descending upon him, as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners, and let down to the earth. Wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, Not so, Lord, I have not eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done thrice, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry from Simon's house and stood before the gate and called and asked whether simon which was surnamed peter were lodged there while peter thought on the vision the spirit said unto him behold three men seek thee and that's where peter accepts and realizes and puts two and two together to understand that he can now go to the roman's house and not only that he can go to the roman's house and eat freely and be a blessing to them as well he doesn't have to do the the whole prayer thing from outside the house it would be a bit awkward so what was true for peter would have been true for many jews who began fellowshipping with gentiles in the early church specifically okay and you can understand that now if you think about it there were clear very clear and very strict laws forbidding jews to eat Certain types of food, whether it was pork or shellfish or any animal outside of what they called what the Lord called clean for them, they were not allowed to eat it and you would not have eaten it at any time during your life. But what do you do when you get together in your local Baptist church and have lunch together? What do you do? If they're anything like us, there's a problem, isn't there? Right? because we love our food. We love to get together. We love to fellowship together. And part of that process is eating together. And so when you can't eat, that, that can div- create some pretty strong dividing lines between yourself. What do you do? Do you bring food? Do you not bring food? Do you go? Do you partake? Do you not? What if I still feel it's wrong? Should I judge those people? Should I tell them, no, you shouldn't be bringing that food because it offends me? What should I do? Do you boycott church lunches? Do you boycott visiting Gentile families? Yeah. These are the ones that had a, a particular problem and that caused them weaken the faith. The Gentile, on the other hand, who had the strong, had a similar problem. When you think about it, he might wonder, what's wrong with these people? You know why isn't he eating my pork chops? My wife slaved a whole day yesterday preparing them, spicing them up, and doing everything that she had to do. Now they're not even eating them. They don't care. What does he do? You know, does he does he eat the pork chop in front of them and say, "Look, you can eat this. Look, look, look look how beautiful it is." (laughs) Italians would probably do that too. Do you start do you start judging them for judging you? You see, people will do this all the time. If you don't partake in something that they're doing, they automatically assume, oh, he's judging me. It's a bit like, you know, when I go out to to dinner with someone, you know, and, and they say, you know, do you want wine or whatever? And I say, I don't drink, automatically like, hang on, why don't you drink? Are you judging me? But that's what we naturally are inclined to do you know do you do you what do you do with those people you know do you look at them as just nitpicking people are just nitpicking we can eat god said that we can eat and you guys are just nitpicking making problems so should you give them a piece of your mind should you show them exactly you know how, how you can eat and how, what freedom you have do you make fun of them do you ostracize them none of these because romans 14 one says him that is weak in the faith receive ye receive but not to doubtful disputation. So in other words, accept your brother, whether he eats or whether he doesn't, accept him as a brother, which means I love him exactly the same as everyone else. He may not eat my pork chops or I may not eat his particular food because they are a, it's a problem for me, but I don't I don't despise him or reject him. I love him. I honor him. I respect him as every other brother that I have in the faith. I don't get upset with him either, thinking that he's judging me. And I don't play with this thought around in my mind that I have to somehow tell this guy what he has to do. Because it says, don't accept him or don't receive him to doubtful disputations. Don't go arguing over stuff. That's not a big deal. Because whether you eat or whether you don't doesn't make one iota of difference at the end of the day. Okay, Don't start getting into arguments over things that are not important. Okay, um, Paul says that within the church there are those that are convicted with eating certain foods while there are those who just eat everything. And you know what? That's fine. That's okay. Verse 2 says, For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. That's fine. Each one accepts the other. Okay? So the stronger is the one who has less laws imposed upon himself, the weaker is the one who has more. Okay? So it isn't just for Jewish and Gentile believers. Some Gentiles who had been also being saved from pagan religions knew what they had done before offering sacrifices to their idols and maybe eating a certain type of meat would have brought back some pretty bad memories and so it would have been difficult for them maybe to eat a certain type of meat because it brought it would bring those things back you know one of the reasons i do not and i haven't drunk any alcohol for 25 years i think it is around that sort of time one of the reasons is because the very same thing. Because there is those who have been saved from alcoholism. And so if I, if I use my freedom in front of them and say, oh, I can have a glass of wine if I want, I may actually be creating a stumbling block for them. It may bring back some pretty bad memories or even cause them problems as well. So I will restrict my freedom in order to bless them. And that's one of the guiding principles that we've been called to because love means I will willingly put aside something that I can do so I can love you. That's what it's always, you will find this thing over the next couple of weeks repeated over and over again. So it says in verse 3, Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received them. You know what? You're both believers. God has received him and he has received you. God has accepted you both and you shouldn't be despising each other for the sake of food. It doesn't matter what food you eat. It doesn't matter um, if you come into this church and you only eat herbs. You only eat whatever it is. And I'm eating a pork chop. I'll try not to eat a pork chop in front of you if it's going to be a problem for you. Okay? So Paul first gives us an example. So we've got the whole chapter to go. Well, we've got to have plenty of time for that. but We're only looking at these first four verses today. Paul gives us an example of eating food as a challenge within the early church. It wasn't the laws that people were imposing on themselves that was the concern, but the way they would look and treat each other. That was the concern. What do you do with another brother who doesn't have the same rules and standards that I have? How do I look at them? And so that was the concern that this passage is treating. How you treat each other is most important as to exactly what, you, what standard you want to have. You may differ on a matter of sin uh, that wasn't necessarily clearly specified in the Bible but is no, it's not a reason to actually um, reject each other. In fact, the New Testament, just to give you a bit of background, the New Testament does make it clear that all foods can be received with thanksgiving. So 1 Timothy 4.4 4 says, For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. That's pretty clear, isn't it? But what about the guy who still can't eat? What do I do with them? Do I push their nose into this particular verse and say, No, you're wrong. No, you don't. If you understand this verse and you don't have that particular problem, then that's fine. You're the stronger Christian. You're the one who has more liberty in Christ. But the question is how you use your liberty. That is the most important question that you need to ask. Why do some people also maybe not give themselves the freedom that they maybe have in the Lord? Because sometimes freedom can be a scary thing. Freedom can be actually a very scary thing for some people who you've been used to living in particular confines and walls most of their life and they become very comfortable with them. If you've been living in a particular way or your life with certain rules for most of your life, maybe being brought up a certain way, it can become a particularly scary thing when you've been brought into an area or among people who don't have those same boundaries as you. And then to be told you cannot have, you don't need those boundaries either, then can become a fearful thing. Have you ever heard of a cage-bound bird, uh, bird? you Ever heard of that particular phrase? A cage-bound bird is a bird who will not leave their cage, even when the door is fully open for them. They won't leave, um, and it's and it's like a phobia. It's a bit like uh, agoraphobia. People who are scared to leave their their homes, right? and it's a fear that the bird has because it doesn't want to leave it's safe i'm scared to say safe space but safe area okay anxiety disorder and it's caused because the bird has not been that lot of the cage for a very very long time and it becomes used to the boundaries of the cage if it leaves most cage bound parrots for instance become terrified and even aggressive if they if they try to remove them from the cage some believers are the same some believers have been brought up in a certain way and so they're used to those boundaries and then to step out of those boundaries to be told you don't have to do that becomes a scary thing some believers actually impose more laws upon themselves because it makes them feel safer you know if i set myself a standard or or a law That says thou shalt not walk more than two kilometers an hour that will make me more safe because i'll have less chance of tripping over does that make sense and they set rules for themselves for that very purpose but it's up to every person what rules they set for themselves in the old in uh, in olden days if you look at this church now there is one lady in particular who's wearing a hat. Now, I won't actually point her out, (laughs) right, because I don't want to embarrass her. Um, And she's pulled the hat down now. But if you were to go back how many years, Don, when women were wearing hats in church? In the 60s? 50s and 60s? Okay. So in the the 50s, if you were a, a female... You'd come to church with a hat, okay? And part of that, and gloves and, and stuff like that, yeah. So to, 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 to for a woman to come to the church, they would wear hats. Now, it wasn't a fashion thing, although it probably became a fashion thing, right? But it wasn't meant to be a fashion thing because what they did is they took that verse that says, you know, a woman cannot pray without her head being covered. And they took that and they expanded to the whole church. And so they made that the rule of the church. And if you came in the church without a hat, people sort of give you a bit of a strange look. But that was safe, wasn't it? It was a safe thing that they did it for, just in case they sort of stepped outside the boundaries. And we've got our own rules and, and things in this church. We sing hymns. You might say, what are we only singing hymns for? Why, why can't we have a couple of good Hillsong churches up here? Uh, Hillsong song. Well, we set ourselves a particular boundary, right? And we've said that this is our boundary that we want to stay within because we've seen some of the stuff that's out there okay and so this becomes uh, an area for us that we know to be safe and we know it makes it easier for us to stay within but some people actually thought to themselves that they would create more and more stricter rules because the stricter the rules you made the less chance that people were ha- or had of sinning so you made churches made harder and harder and harder rules you know the length of skirts. They measure the you know the length of the hair. They do all these different types of things, and so the church is not doing that as much these days. But there was a general trend for many many years. But was it correct? If I impose more, if we impose more rules upon ourselves and laws upon ourselves, does it make us safer? Maybe not, because. One of the harsh criticisms that Jesus had in his day was for the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very good, actually, doctrinally. They knew their stuff. They had their Bibles memorized. But what were they doing? They were adding more and more stuff. They took God's word and they said, no, that's not clear enough, God. You know, we have to now describe this in a whole lot more detail than what you've given. And so they would do all these, add all these extra laws. And Jesus told them off and said, you make it so much harder. You know, to follow God's laws. In fact, with all the laws you add on, you actually make the original law default. You actually make it useless. You make it more and more complicated and impossible to follow. In fact, God does not like when you add to his word, but neither when you take away. So Jesus says to the, the Pharisees and the scribes in verse Matthew twenty-three twenty-three: Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, which means they were they were tithing their little spices, okay? They were tithing exactly each one to make sure because they had to give given exactly a tenth. And have omitted the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you may clean the outside of the cup, and you make sure it's all polished on the outside, but within you are full of extortion and excess. The first principles we learn is that adding to God's word, adding more laws upon yourself doesn't make you holier. It might not even make you safer, because in all the detail you provide for yourself, you actually may begin forgetting about the basics, the basics of love of mercy and those sorts of things and so in verse 4 our final verse in uh, Romans 14 why art thou that who art thou that judgest another man's servant to his own master he standeth or falleth yea he shall be holden up for God is able to make him stand this is the blessedness of a genuine salvation If you have any doubt this morning, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and you know that you've been saved, then I will guarantee you that God is able to make you stand. That is your guarantee. Not you are able to make yourself stand because you have no strength within you to do that. It is God who sustains his children all the way to the end of the road. Every one of them. He will not lose one. Jesus did not lose one person okay even Judas who he picked was already a devil and stayed a devil and then betrayed him Jesus did not lose one person and he will not lose one of you yea ye shall be holden up for God is able to make you stand that's the beauty of the gospel and is a topic of food as we close up is a topic of food the only challenging area that Christians disagree on no by far is it the only topic that they they judge each other on no we've just been through covid if we haven't learned that lesson there are plenty of other examples and paul's going to raise them for us as well in these in coming weeks we'll look at this passage but like as it was then it's exactly the same now you may be living in a different country at a different time you may be holding iphones when they didn't have any iphones but the same heart exists within here as those people back then. It's the same today. Um, last time I checked, Faulkner is a wonderful place to find halal food and Hindu food served in certain restaurants. Do we eat? Do we not eat? What do we do with each other if we eat or if we don't eat? Are there any other areas of dispute when it comes to living for the Lord? Of course there are. Are there areas the Bible does not give us clear laws for? Of course there are. What music do you listen to? What clothes do you wear? What customs do you practice at home and that you have brought in from your culture? What movies or TV shows do you allow yourself to watch? What books do you read and spend your time consuming? What subjects do you study? What foods do you eat? Obviously. What drinks do you drink? Where do you meet together? How often do you meet? And what do you do when you meet? What do you do with your time? What do you do with your money? Do you follow sport? What do you do with politics? What clubs do you join? What entertainment do you enjoy? What hours do you work? What words do you speak? Do you wear perfume, jewelry, hats? <laughs> what hairstyle do you have? Or what hairstyle don't you have? <laughs> what days should you consider holy? What days you should you not consider holy? What do you do on those days? The list goes on and on and on. We can disagree about a million things if we like. The question then is. Are we going to consume each other with those things? Now, I don't particularly believe this is a problem for our church. I think we have a a lovely united church and we have a wonderful love for each other. And love covers a multitude of sins. It does. And I thank you for your love, for all my sins, because you're very generous and patient. So be patient with each other as well. Thanks, Bill. There are plenty of things that God doesn't give us direct commandments for but we're going to discover the Bible does give us a number of guiding principles to follow and we're going to my prayer is you be able to use those guiding principles when we come up with a a thing that we're not entirely sure about but first and foremost let me just remind you for those of you who have been freed from the weight and the penalty of the law that you have been made free in Christ. We have not been made free from the law to sin, to indulge the flesh. No, we have been made free from the law to love. That is what we've been freed for. If you know something to be a sin, if you believe it to be a sin, then don't indulge in it at all. If you have doubt, keep away. There's your first guiding principle. You should abstain. Other people's sinning should never be a license for you or me to sin. We should never use other people as an excuse. But we are not also called to judge our brethren if there's something that they do which maybe is not clearly taught as a sin in the Bible. If you're going to leave this sermon today with one thing, it's to love. It's to love the Lord your God the most because he loves you the most. And he still does. And you are called to love your brother and sister in Christ because love never fails. Let this principle guide us in the coming days and all of our judgments and you will succeed in this thing called this Christian walk that God has given to us and that Jesus has saved us for. If you're not sure about what love is, then just read about how Jesus lived. Meditate on 1 Corinthians 13. And ask yourself whether you do those things. And the Spirit of God will lead you into all truth. If you are unsaved today, then I invite you to experience the love of God. To receive that love. To lay aside your your pride, lay aside your fears, and turn to the one, the only one, who can save you from your sin and the penalty of that. Jesus Christ, the Saviour of this world. God bless you. And thank you. And if you need any prayer this morning, uh, before you leave, I share with you that Brother Praveen is, is has a, a a time of prayer at the back. If you need any specific prayer for anything at all, or if you'd like to pray about salvation or we'll know more about it, please see us in the back room over there, and we'll be happy to pray for you. God bless you.